It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. That's one of the things you do when someone's murder is victimology. You find out everything you can about your victim, their history, their lifestyles, who they're talking to. It's part of the investigation. And because of that, throughout the years, there have been many different conspiracies. Was it someone she's prosecuted for a sex crime? Is it someone she may have pissed off in a relationship? Could it be a random act of violence? It's hard to say. You know, St. Tammany probably has over the years a dozen or so unsolved murders. Why is this one gaining attention? Because of who she was, who she knew, her notoriety. She was a prosecutor. That brings extra attention to it. So you'll hear everything. Theories, no matter how wide and, and strange they may be, all have to be examined. Maybe one of those crazy ones is the actual theory, the actual piece that will help you solve that crime. You can't ignore them. And this case is no different. When several years passed with no arrests in the murder of Margaret Kuhn, pressure against the St. Tammany Sheriff's Office began to build. Many in the community refused to accept that the case could not be solved and they directed their frustration at the authorities tasked with investigating Kuhn's death. The loudest critics included a millionaire cattle rancher, a pugnacious private investigator, and a Canadian security guard who spent years traveling the U.S. as a cartoon bloodhound. As law enforcement's enthusiasm faded, these individuals would keep the case and Margaret's memory alive. They were the last best hope for figuring out who killed Margaret Kuhn. I'm Jed Lipinski. This is Gone South, Episode 4, Concerned Citizens. Margaret Kuhn was an only child, and her mother died of cancer in 1977. So when Margaret was killed, she was survived by just one person in her immediate family, her father, Webster A. Kuhn. I met Mr. Kuhn when I was a pharmacist tech at CVS. He was a gentleman, nice as he could be, very quiet, very shy. This is Brenda Marchand, a longtime resident of Alexandria, who met Webster a few years after Margaret died. I think one of the pharmacists had told me before that his only daughter had been murdered. And so um, I was helping him with his purchases, and he just, you know, started talking about his daughter, Margaret A. Coon, that was killed in Mandeville, Louisiana. He just needed someone to talk to. And he says he would like for me to come and look at the tape of it. Good evening and welcome to the journal. 
Our cover story this evening concerns the unsolved murder of a beautiful young divorcee who lived in one of the most affluent neighborhoods of Mandeville. It really upset me, you know, because, I mean, I'm like, I can't believe he's sitting here watching this, wanting, you know, to see it again. You know, one time in his mind would be enough. W.A. Kuhn is a man determined to find the killer of his beautiful 41-year-old daughter, Margaret. Webster Kuhn was 67 when Margaret died. He owned and helped run a 500-acre cattle and pecan ranch outside Alexandria and served as an emeritus board member of a local bank. In his western-cut suits, gray Stetson hat, and tinted sunglasses, he looked like a retired cowboy. Webster stayed active, but he was lonely. Like Margaret, he was an only child. His sister had died of pneumonia at age nine, his father and mother were deceased, and he had no living aunts or uncles. So after Margaret died, he hired Brenda as his caretaker. They spent almost every day together at his house in Alexandria. After Margaret died and he recovered her belongings, he had his house pretty much in the same order she had had the stuff arranged at her condo. His house here was a shrine, like exactly where she had placed things and all. But according to friends and relatives, Margaret and Webster's relationship was strained. Some say it started when Margaret's mother died 10 years earlier. Apparently, her father didn't wait long before dating other women. Also, Margaret's mother was more willing to help her financially than Webster was. Mr. Coon was very tight. He really was, you know. He would have a small TV, and he enjoyed watching TV. And I said, Mr. Coon, you need a bigger TV, you know, so you can see it. I had to pay half on it. I had to pay half on the TV since we both watched it. <laughs> Margaret and Mr. Coon's relationship was distant, you know. She never really came for a visit. She always contacted him when she wanted something. But after Margaret divorced Bernard Smith, she and Webster began making amends. They were talking on the phone again. Webster even helped Margaret pay for the condo in Beauchene. Mr. Coon talked about Margaret Ann just about every day. He would just say she was a beautiful girl and he loved her and, and he, you know, hope he finds out who murdered her. He did not want to go to his grave until he found out who it was. Webster told the Baton Rouge advocate that Margaret had a premonition of her impending death. A week before she died, she'd forced him to take a key to her new place. Webster protested, but Margaret wore him down, saying, You never know when you'll need it, Daddy. Webster later told the advocate, I think she was worried about something. Webster was convinced the case could be solved. When authorities failed to make an arrest, he didn't sit on the sidelines. He made his presence known in St. Tammany. I'd talk to anybody that stands still long enough to, to interview them, talk to them. Y'all hear of anything? Well, I'm a man trying to find out who killed her. Her father would uh, make a trip to uh, Covington uh, at least two, maybe three times a month, usually on a Friday afternoon and uh, sometimes every weekend. And uh, 
come in and check with us to see where we were, what we had going on, and were we any closer to solving her case. And uh, you could tell he was a loving, caring father that, that wanted to see his daughter's case solved. That's Freddie Drennan, the former chief of detectives for the sheriff's office. He felt for Webster and says he threw all of his department's resources at the case. I think every detective I had worked on it in some fashion, shape, or form, okay? Especially running down leads and running down tips and running down things like that. We threw everything we had at it, okay? So literally everyone that I had had something to do with the case at one point in time. But despite the sheriff's department's efforts, the case had reached a standstill. You try to establish a motive, and uh, all the jewelry she was wearing, of course, you know, it, it was very clear it was not robbery. Of course, you just keep looking and looking and trying to find out, you know, who, when, where, or what. And in this situation, you know, we just could not establish a real clear motive. For more than a year, Webster made the 400-mile round trip to St. Tammany every week, but his trips always ended in disappointment. Over time, Webster grew frustrated by the lack of progress, so he took matters into his own hands. W.A. Kuhn has hired private investigator Sandra Davis full-time to search for the killer. Sandra Davis was a 43-year-old private investigator who lived near Webster in Alexandria. She'd read about Margaret's death in the paper and called Webster to offer help. Her experience was limited to divorces and personal injury claims, but Webster eagerly brought her on board. The two of them would soon become a thorn in the side of the sheriff's office. Webster wasn't the only one who suspected the sheriff's office wasn't playing it straight. Around the time he hired Sandra, another St. Tammany resident was making accusations against the department. Unlike Webster and Sandra, he was an insider. I made a gumbo for you guys today, I, uh, traditional gumbo, being down from the south here. Well, that was our special way of treating you. And also, I, I, I wanted to present you with a coffee cup for you so you can remember this trip down here to Louisiana. And of course, That's uh, Winston Cavendish. We met him at his house in Slidell, which sits on five-foot stilts near the edge of an overgrown swamp. But despite the gumbo and southern hospitality, Winston isn't from here. He's Canadian. He worked for years as a mall cop and security guard in Alberta before moving to Louisiana in the 70s. He found a job as the assistant chief of police in Mandeville. And by 1980, Pat Canulet, the sheriff of St. Tammany, had hired him as his chief spokesman, a job Winston held for more than seven years. But in January 1987, Winston abruptly quit, citing a dispute with Canulet. The next day, he declared his own candidacy for sheriff that fall. Pat Canulet says he invited the challenge. He wasn't the only employee, a former employee that ran against me. And uh, people feel that I'm not getting my just due or I want this and they didn't get it. So they take a shot, you know, and, and that's fine. It's America. And that's fine. You know, that's what it's all about. Winston entered the race with a bit of star power. You've probably never heard of Winston Cavendish, but you might recognize his alter ego. Good grief, somebody's breaking in the house. Somebody better cool like cops. Oh, hi, McGruff the crime dog. Let's get together and help me. Griff, take a bite out of crime. Very good. Good boy. Good boy. You like that, don't you? You're a good dog. 
If you grew up in the 80s or 90s, you might remember McGruff the Crime Dog, the trench-coated cartoon bloodhound who urged a generation of kids to take a bite out of crime. Marijuana, don't try it at all. It's a lie. It's like beating your head on a wall. During the 1980s, Winston put on the dog costume and traveled the country promoting McGruff's crime prevention program. If you gamble with life, you can lose it. In 1984, President Ronald Reagan invited him to the White House and named him Policeman of the Year. McGruff was famous. In his effort to unseat Canulet, Winston exploited his connection to the cartoon cop, listing himself on the ballot as Winston McGruff Cavendish. He campaigned as a reformer who would clean up the department and tackle unsolved crimes. I couldn't stand uh, the corruption within the department. And unsolved crimes, that was one of the things. Margaret Coombs was the number one issue in my campaign. I wanted to make sure we would solve the case. Winston believed that some form of corruption was behind the failure to solve Margaret's murder. It explained what he considered a lack of righteous indignation following her death. No one said, I, no one goes to sleep tonight. The deputies do not go to sleep. The DAs don't go to sleep until they bring the person or persons involved before me. There was none of that. And, and that was a big red flag for me. When I ran for sheriff, I was trying to change this whole attitude. But according to Winston, his run for sheriff was met with fierce opposition. Tell me, just, yeah, tell me what happened when you tried to run for sheriff. Oh, they were terrible. I came out here one night, they were lighting the crosses in my yard. And I got out there with my 12-gauge shotgun. Did you know whose house you're burning these crosses on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's the guy running against Pat. Winston claims one of Canulet's deputies even fired a warning shot at him one night. I'm gassing my car up at the little Highway 11 uh, pick-a-pocket store. And I look, and there's a flash. If you've been shot at, you know what I'm talking about. Part of the gas pump was knocked away right near my face. I rolled under my car and I had my 357 came up. There was a deputy with a rifle, and I squaredly on his, on his chest to shoot. And I said, if I kill that deputy, I'll get life imprisonment. Worse yet, I'll be killed in this parish. And he got in his unit and drove off. In the end, Canulet won re-election in a landslide. And for years afterwards, Winston struggled to find a job. I'm a leper within the, in the law enforcement community in St. Tammany because I know too damn much. Winston said his treatment at the hands of the sheriff's associates only bolstered his negative opinion of the office. But he was forced to leave St. Tammany to find work. In his absence, Webster Kuhn and Sandra Davis dove into their own investigation. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Webster Kuhn provided Sandra Davis with all of Margaret's correspondence and writings, in addition to whatever leads and tips he'd managed to pry from local law enforcement. Sandra was a quick study and soon became obsessed with the case. Sandra originally agreed to participate in this podcast. She seemed eager to help and sent me a stack of documents related to the case. But in June, she abruptly cut off contact. Despite our efforts, we never heard from her again. Fortunately, we recorded our initial phone calls before she disappeared. Hi, okay, can you hear me? Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, tell me what you were going to tell me. Sandra supported the detective's initial conclusions. Like them, she eliminated Margaret's ex-husband, Bernard Smith. You know, he was in Piccadilly eating. He had the receipt and had the manager verified, you know, the whole thing. She also dismissed Charles Muley. That didn't hold water from the get-go because what difference did it make to kill Margaret if it was him? They're just going to put another prosecutor on the case. Sandra ruled out Jay Fagan and Fagan's wife. She described Craig Rodriguez as a, quote, nut who had delusions of grandeur. She knew investigators had a tough hill to climb, and she sympathized. They had no clues. They had no evidence. They didn't have a knife. They didn't have uh, anything. No fingernails or fingerprints or... He basically had nothing to work with as far as evidence you could look at. But her attempts to share information with sheriff's deputies were roundly rejected. She and Detective Clark Thomas developed a mutual contempt for one another. Oh my gosh. He hated me and I hated him. Other lawmen wrote her off as an amateur, or what one reporter called an inexperienced kibitzer. Basically, 99% of the sheriff's department, any place that you go, you are not qualified. An amateur. Just an amateur trying to investigate into the sheriff's department's business. Sandra took their rejection in stride. She started calling herself an amateur homicide investigator and set about re-interviewing everyone detectives spoke to. She also tried to generate national media attention. She sent letters to Oprah, Geraldo, and Donahue, but never heard back. She even reached out to Unsolved Mysteries, whose segment on Charles Muley had led to his arrest, but she never got traction. Webster, meanwhile, tried to stir up tips the old-fashioned way by buttonholing everyone he met. My daughter was the girl that was murdered over in Beauchamp Subdivision. I remember when she used to come in here. She was really sweet. The press took notice, including Times-Picayune reporter Drew Broach. He used to bring a picture of her and just chat up people at restaurants and motels and anybody he could find to say, you ever met my daughter? You know anything about her? You know, he was trying to make sense of it himself. Drew wrote several stories about Webster's quest to find his daughter's killer. He genuinely wanted to, I think, to generate some tips or to get somebody 
who might have known something who had never said anything. But he also, you know, wanted to keep the sheriff's office on track, too, because they didn't really have anything. And so he would come back occasionally to remind them that his only child was dead and that the killer hadn't been found and, you know, try to gently persuade them to take a new look at it. Webster received dozens of tips from people who'd read about him or seen him on TV. In 1991, he got a letter from an inmate at Dixon Correctional Institute outside Baton Rouge. The man said his cellmate had confessed to the crime and that he would reveal his name for a price. Sandra pounced on the lead and tracked the man down in prison. But as she told a local paper, he turned out to be a con man. Another time, on Thanksgiving Day, a woman left a long message on Webster's answering machine saying she knew who the killer was, but wasn't ready to come forward, as doing so would put her life in danger. Webster believed her. When months passed with no word, he placed an ad in the news banner, begging her to call back, but she never did. So Sandra and Webster went back to the drawing board. A year after Margaret's murder, at the behest of the sheriff's office, the FBI had generated a psychological profile of the killer. They reached a surprising conclusion. The killer, they said, was a woman, most likely motivated by hatred or revenge. Sandra was aware of the profile, but as usual, her requests for more information were denied. So she and Webster got creative. They found a retired FBI agent named J. Michael Wilson, and they hired him to generate his own psychological profile. Before she cut off contact with us, Sandra sent us a copy of Wilson's report. In it, he eliminated serial killers, sadistic murderers, and roaming psychotics. No, Wilson wrote, Margaret's murder was more personal than that. He said the killer knew Margaret and may have felt betrayed or hurt by her. He concluded, I feel that the killer is a white female who resides in the general area of the victim and knew the victim casually. He added that the killer was, quote, totally familiar with the victim's habits. Sandra was floored by the profile. She later told reporters that it matched one of her best suspects to a T. One of Webster and Sandra's best investigative tools was Margaret's diary. We tried to get a hold of it ourselves, but all we could get were heavily redacted pages from the St. Tammany DA's office. It's an agonizing document. For example, one passage reads, 9.40 p.m., I have a cold-blooded, absolute fear that... And here, the text disappears behind a wall of black ink. But Sandra had access to the unredacted version, and she reached out to everyone Margaret wrote about. One of them was Irma Alamond, Margaret's former manicurist, who you may remember from episode two. She found me at Beaumont, and uh, we talked on the phone quite a few times, and we met, I think, one or two times, when she was asking me questions about Margaret and her private life. Not long after Margaret's murder, Irma had developed an intriguing theory. It started when the owner of her salon, Eileen Pettengill, approached Irma with a request. Eileen came to me and said, Irma, 
I have this friend who wants to talk to you about Margaret because she wants to write a book about Margaret. I said, a book? The person who wanted to write a book about Margaret was named Judy Edwards. Judy was married to a local judge, and the two of them lived across the street from Margaret in Beauchamp. She said she lives in Beauchamp. She's Margaret's neighbor. I said, oh, Lord. I said, Margaret didn't like him. According to Irma, Judy's husband had made some offensive remarks to Margaret in court. When Margaret discovered he and Judy were her neighbors, Irma said, she considered moving out. Not long after, Irma said Judy started jogging next to Margaret on her daily runs, badgering her with questions. At first, Margaret let her run with her. And then it just got real creepy, Margaret said. She just couldn't handle it anymore. She would go different different ways and stuff and say, no, I'm not going running today. I'm going shopping. She said, Irma, I told her I just can't run tonight. And she would still come by my house knocking on the door. You know, it, it was just very hard to get away from her. Irma said Judy was obsessed with a vacation Margaret had taken months before she died. She was asking her about her trip to Florida. And Margaret said she was just getting too personal and just making her feel uncomfortable, like she was lying or something. One afternoon, Irma drove to Boshan to meet with Judy and discuss her book idea. When she arrived, she said Judy began grilling her about Margaret's recent trip to Florida. I said, yes. I said, Margaret went to Florida to meet somebody. I said, uh, she went with her boyfriend. I told her, I said, she had a boyfriend. And she said, a boyfriend? I said, yes. I said, he was, he's a dentist in Mandeville. Very well respected. He's recently divorced. She said, well, I don't believe that. I think her and my husband was having an affair. I said, Judy. I said, I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm the, I'm the kind of person that tells you, if you need a haircut, go get your haircut. You need it. I said, I'm going to tell you, Margaret is not having an affair with your husband. I said, when she seen you and the judge on the steps of their uh, condo, and she was going into her condo, she almost died. She said, Irma, I can't live next door to this man. She couldn't stand him. And I said, Judy, she hated him. She said, no way. That was just a uh, disguise. Judy refused to believe Irma, but she eventually got back to the book. Her judge husband had procured police files and autopsy photos for her, and Judy laid them out on the table. She said, when you're a judge's wife, you can get anything. And I got it because I needed to write this book. She said, I have the pictures, I have the blood work, I have everything about how she was stabbed, the measurements, everything of the knife. I said, oh, I said, okay. She said, you sure you don't want to see those pictures? No. I said, I don't think so. I said, I want to remember Margaret the way I, I saw her the last time. I said, I don't need to see her pictures of her being dead. As they sat there looking at photos of Margaret's dead body, something bizarre happened. Margaret's Afghan hound, Charlene, suddenly walked into the room. Irma froze. 
Apparently, Judy had offered to take the dog after Margaret died. For the rest of the visit, Charlene, the only eyewitness to the crime, sat silently between them. And that dog never left my side. I said, it gave me the willies. And I was petting her, and she would look at me. And I, I told Judy, I said, Judy, I said, I wish this dog could talk. If only she could speak, because she knows who killed Margaret. She said, oh, yeah, I'm sure she does. Irma was deeply troubled by the Judy Edwards visit but she kept it to herself until Sandra Davis called a year or so later. As Irma described her disturbing encounter with Judy and how she'd supposedly hassled Margaret before her death, Sandra listened in amazement. I told her the whole thing about Judy, and she said, Irma, think back all the questions that she asked you and about how she brought up those pictures. Why would she get all that information from the coroner's office to write a book when she knows damn well she wasn't writing a book? She said she wanted to refresh her memory. That's what murderers do. They gloat over their kill or whatever. And she said, Irma, you know, Judy was mad at Margaret because she accused Margaret of being with her husband. Sandra told Irma that two FBI profiles suggested the killer was a woman. The second one, which she and Webster had commissioned, matched Irma's description of Judy almost perfectly. It led them to believe Judy was the killer. We both came to the same conclusion that Judy went looking for Margaret and she brought a knife maybe to threaten her or something. And they argued, and I think she stabbed Margaret out of jealousy. In October 1991, Sandra approached the sheriff's office with her findings. The Judy Edwards theory was her best lead yet, and she was optimistic. But once again, they rebuffed her. Larry Seco, the sheriff's new spokesperson, called her claims baseless and unfounded. According to Sandra, they also questioned the veracity of her FBI agent's report. And besides, they said, investigators for the DA's office had already interviewed Judy two years earlier, and they claimed there was no evidence connecting her to the crime. Sandra was incensed. Judy Edwards' husband, Wallace, was an appellate court judge in St. Tammany and had served as president of the Louisiana District Judges Association. She was convinced investigators had ruled Judy out due to Wallace's political connections. For her, it was the last straw. Sandra and Webster began circulating a petition to have the sheriff's office removed from the case. Sandra cited several reasons why. Beyond the lack of interest in Judy Edwards, Sandra pointed out that, at the time of Margaret's death, the firm that ran security at Beauchan, known as Fox Security, was owned by the sheriff's office's chief criminal deputy, Wilmer J. Fandall. And in July 1989, more than two years after Margaret's death, 
Fandall was found guilty of charges including obstruction of justice, perjury, and mail fraud related to the operation of Fox Security. He was later sentenced to 18 months in federal prison. In Sandra's eyes, the fact that a top sheriff's deputy was running Boshen security when Kuhn was killed could have influenced the course of the investigation and posed a blatant conflict of interest. And that wasn't all. Fox Security claimed to keep track of every non-resident who came in and out of Boshen. But according to Sandra and others we spoke to, Fox Security guards rarely did that. This is how Tim Lentz, the former deputy, described it. You're supposed to give identification. They're supposed to log down your license plate number if you're not a resident. All the residents had little stickers on their windshields. And they don't have a log of who's going in and out of the subdivision that night. Imagine what a valuable piece of information that would be to investigators to know a license plate number, or a driver's license number of those who entered during the time that Margaret was killed. That didn't exist. Webster and Sandra laid out these and other grievances in their petition. Local media ate it up. But the sheriff's office fired back. They argued that Fandall was only an administrator and had nothing to do with the Kuhn case. And once again, they questioned Sandra's qualifications as an investigator. Sheriff's officials we spoke with resented Sandra's accusations. Former Sheriff Pat Canulet said his office did the best they could despite a crushing lack of resources. Well, I'm telling you, we had nothing. We had nothing. We had a 38-man jail that we had 70 or 80 prisoners in. And you're paying guys $7,000, $7,500 a year to do it. We didn't have any high-efficiency radio systems. You know, there was no security cameras. Come on. This is gumshoe. We didn't have any DNA. We didn't have any computers. That's tough. If a bad guy doesn't talk or somebody have some knowledge of it, it's really hard to solve a homicide. Freddie Drennan, the former chief of detectives, said he took Margaret's case personally. I always took these cases very personal. I felt it was my responsibility to solve it. Believe me, uh, my team, my guys, uh, we worked hard. We tried to do the best we could do with the resources we had. And uh, listen, let, let me say this, turn everything off. Just sure, sure, sure. Freddie was offended by the idea that he didn't do everything possible to find Margaret's killer. Once we turned the recorders back on, he elaborated. You know, Jed, I don't know that you can really grasp what I'm about to say, but, you know, when we have homicide cases like this, uh, we, we don't work them, we live them. You know, we, we literally live those cases. It, it's not a light switch. You can't just flip it off when you go home. I, I live these cases. I live them over and over and over again. You don't know how I wish many times that I could just just flip my brain off and, and forget about them. But, you know, you don't. Sometimes that load gets really, really, really heavy. And Margaret's case is one that, that will haunt me as long as I live, along with other cases, you know, that we were unable to solve. You know, I, I just hope and pray that some of those cases get solved before I'm gone. We asked members of the sheriff's office what they made of the other accusations by former deputy Winston Cavendish. We got some interesting responses. The consensus seemed to be that Winston was a good guy 
but ultimately unreliable and a bit of a fabulist. Winston liked to portray himself as the ultimate crime fighter, they said, the embodiment of his alter ego, McGruff. But former Chief Deputy Wallace Laird said that wasn't entirely accurate. He was sworn in as a deputy, yeah, but uh, I mean, he had authorities to arrest and all of that, but I don't know that he ever arrested anybody. I mean, he didn't do police work. Winston also claimed that he helped invent McGruff the Crime Dog. But in truth, the concept was developed by a Madison Avenue ad agency, and a New Orleans cop named John Isbell coined the name. As for whether a sheriff's deputy ever fired a gun at Winston, well, Wallace Laird doubts it. I, I think that's uh, just a lot of bull. He, again, he's, he's got an imagination that uh, is unbelievable. But he, he dreamed a lot. I mean, he really did. And I, I, don't, I don't think any of those things happen. As for Webster and Sandra's efforts, the state attorney general eventually assigned one of his investigators to the case, but nothing ever came of it. By then, Sandra was burned out. She told a reporter, I never want to touch another homicide investigation as long as I live, calling them too emotionally draining. We never got a chance to ask Sandra what happened next, but Webster's caretaker, Brenda Marchand, said she and Webster had a falling out. Brenda claimed Webster had paid Sandra around $200,000 and put her up in his house, but she did little to repay the favor. In Sandra's absence, Webster forged on, continuing to search for Margaret's killer. As his health declined, Brenda Marchand took to driving him to St. Tammany and back. Every February, we would make a trip to Mandeville to see if they had any leads in the murder of Margaret. He did not lose hope on hoping they would find whoever murdered his only child. For years, Webster's trips and the news articles that resulted were the only things keeping the case alive. Occasionally, the DA or the sheriff put a new investigator on it, hoping they might turn something up, but they never did. They would just say they haven't found out any new information or anything like that. Mr. Coon knew he wouldn't be able to make any more trips to Mandeville. He was in a wheelchair, and he just said, I'll I'll die not knowing what happened. Webster A. Coon died in August 2005, a week before Hurricane Katrina made landfall in New Orleans. The Times-Picayune marked the occasion with a story titled, Mystery Outlives Victim's Father. Tim Lentz remembers meeting Webster in his last days. You always feel for the families, but especially him. His days were numbered. I knew he didn't have much longer to go and wish he could have gotten some closure before he died, but I always remember him. I always remember him fighting for his daughter. And yet, the fight to track down Margaret's killer did not end with Webster. In the years after his death, the myth of Margaret Kuhn would only grow as reporters and a new generation of investigators, frustrated by the lack of evidence and leads, examined every facet of Margaret's personal life. As it turned out, there was a side to Margaret that was unknown to even her closest colleagues, friends, and family. 
lot of Margaret's personal life had been overlooked in this investigation. Not only does no one know who killed Margaret, but no one seems to have really known Margaret. They were fast, furious, alcohol-fueled, and trying to live the high life. Yeah, I would say Margaret had at least nine lives, but not so much nine lives that she kept surviving from a failure, but nine lives that she lived simultaneously. Margaret left a string of jilted lovers, both male and female, in her wake for years. She had a habit of really breaking people's hearts. If you have tips or information that you'd like to share related to the unsolved murder of Margaret Kuhn or other relevant topics, you can call us at 650-746-GONE or email us at gonesouthpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Gone South, a direction and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 company. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13, along with John Liebman, Ken Lee, and Jared Shear. Written and narrated by me, Jed Lipinski. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Tom Lipinski. Edited by Alistair Sherman, with assistant editing by Molly Nugent. Research and production support by Ian Mont and Paige Heimson. Recording and engineering by Bob Tabador, Bill Schultz, and Sean Cherry. And mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Original music written and performed by Casey Wayne McAllister. Production consulting by Skip Sewell. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Moira Curran, Hilary Schuff, and Josephina Francis. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Justin Alexander, an adventurer, was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive deep into our investigation and uncover the strange events surrounding Justin's disappearance in status untraced. Check out this sneak preview. And this last experience he had with Rawat, I didn't feel good about it. In fact, I felt it was dangerous. It sounds strange, but I just, in my mother's heart, something was not okay. I felt that he was a nefarious character. Status Untraced is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.